Well, good morning. It's very good to see you. If you have your Bible, Colossians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. I am going to be reading from Luke 2 as well, if you desire to turn from there to, to there, excuse me. But Colossians 3 is where we're at, page 834 in the seat Bibles. If you haven't been here in a while or you're just wondering why we are there, as most of you know, we've started, we started Colossians in March, the end of March this year, and we're and heading towards the end, but this is the reason why we are here today. We've been working verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so that is why we are here. Verse 20, chapter 3 of Colossians 3, and then in a minute I'm going to read from Luke 2, verse 41. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now from Luke 2, verse 41. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he, and that would be Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I don't think I'll refer to Luke 2 at all um, during our time together, but it's just good to know that someone who knew as much as Jesus knew was at the end of the day obedient to his mother and obedient to his father. Let's bow together and pray. Well, our gracious God and Father, it's not a matter of formal routine that causes us to bow before you once again this morning. But it is, Father, a matter of an absolute necessity. We are mortal, fragile, prone to wonder, and so easily swayed. You are immortal, indestructible, faithful, having compassion on all you have made. And Father, we see this compassion most clearly in the work of the crucified, risen, exalted, and ascended King, our Lord Jesus Christ, who took what was ours, sin, and gave to us what is His, perfect righteousness so that we who are in Christ have imputed righteousness and unbreakable adoption promise sanctification and certain glorification how good you are to us father so now as we study our bibles this morning thank you for the clarity and for the authority it brings to us we are not here to listen to the the ramblings of a mere man however we are here to listen to you the living god from the pages of your book So we would ask for minds that could think properly, hearts that will listen in humility, and wills that are then captured by your truth so that we might live in the benefit of this instruction. 
Oh, Father, please help us to this end. And as we approach Saturday evening and our annual Thanksgiving dinner, we need your blessing in everything. We need the grace to welcome those who you send generously, to serve gladly, to be happy in our service. And at the end of the night, we would know that we have met with you and brought glory to your name and shined the light on your dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we would see unbelieving people become committed followers of Christ as we enjoy your company, as we enjoy the company of one another to the glory of your name. Now, Father, we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let me get a sip of water here. Well, we have come now to the third of our four, four brief studies, which we referred to on our website as Instruction for Christian Households. We spent a Sunday on God's instruction for the Christian wife, and having lived through that this past Sunday, huh, with impeccable timing, was spent learning uh, God's instruction for the Christian husband. And now this morning, we've come to the place in our Bibles where Paul writes on God's instruction for children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And so here in one concise statement, Paul gives the readers a clear, a complete instruction on how God would have children that ultimately he has brought into this world to be raised. And as you think about that for a moment or two, the fact that there are thousands of books, both secular and Christian, that have been written, and so that you have millions of words, both secular and Christian, which also have been written, trying their best to get to the issue of children and their parents. And here in the Bible, if you would, God has the audacity in this letter to write one sentence, one sentence, the mind of God, which gets to the very essence of the matter, what we would say many find hard to convey. Uh, uh, they find it hard because of um, rebellion. They find it hard because of rejection or hoodwinked or because of the injustices in the world. We understand that. However, the fact that God is so strikingly clear and his expectations are given with, if you would, a power to behave to all that love him, Hundreds and thousands of dollars may not always have to be spent. Special classes not always need to be needed. And extra help may not always have to be had to get to the heart of the matter of the family of God. Now, as we've said in our past two talks, the context given here is a context that absolutely matters. Namely, and we cannot miss this, Paul is writing to those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has to mean something. He, he addressed them, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We thank God for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. In chapter 2, verse 6, he refers to them as those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord, a people living in, if you would, in Christ. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he addressed them in the context of having been raised with Christ and now in union with Christ and having a thought process that is more and more governed by Christ. In other words, what Paul has been teaching them is this, that because of the gospel, the gospel doesn't only change our relationship with God, and thank God that it does, but it also changes our relationship with everybody, and it changes our relationship with everything. The gospel, especially here for children and for parents, if you would, is filled with continuous hellos and continuous goodbyes. 
Hello to what God commands. It's a glad hello. And it's a goodbye to what God forbids. It's a hello to needed forgiveness when we get things wrong. And it's a goodbye to condemnation when we also get things wrong. Because there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the gospel is a life-changing transformation. And in that context, which for Paul means that he's writing from a jail, okay? He's very, very clear that what is true of them is true of them. So this is not so much what you ought to do, but this is what you can now do because of your union with Christ. And so this is for wives and this is for husbands and this morning for children and parents. And so what is true of the Christians in Colossae is also true for the Christians in Cohasset. And what is true is this, because of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ, the gospel transforms the very fabric of every human relationship, and most especially in family. Now, that's good news. That has to be good news. And that's why verse 16, chapter 3, is where it is at. This is kind of a comprehensive statement, a line of thought that Paul gets to before he ever talks about marriage and family. Your Bibles are open. You'll see this. Verse 16. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in order that you may teach one another wisely and sing to one another biblically. Then he goes on by deed and creed and example. Whatever you do, namely husbands and children, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it so that Jesus can say amen to what you're doing, giving thanks to the Father through him. And in that context... He goes on to say, wives do this, husbands do that, and children obey. So this is why I go through that. He just doesn't drop this instruction out of the sky so people can fetter it out as they like. Or so the honest Christian who asks, okay, where in the dickens am I going to get the help to be the kind of husband I need to be, to be the kind of wife I need to be, to be the kind of child I need to be, where am I going to get that help? Well, the question has an answer, and the answer is what I bet you know. It's in the gospel. It's in our union with Christ that makes this possible and makes this unavoidable. So there's no techniques that Paul gives for kids to obey. There's, there's no how-tos. He doesn't have to do that because in Christ you now can. So the whole weight of this hinges on Jesus Christ, on his finished work at Calvary. Every answer, every Christian or question can be answered with the cross. Get that in our heads. Every Christian answer that we have can be answered with the cross. And we dare not deal with these verses then removing ourselves from that understanding. Because if we do that, we'll come to interpretation that is less than helpful. Setting and seeing and circumstance and the theology behind what he's saying matters. So some people might say, well, I appreciate that little bit of info, but it hardly seems necessary. Well, if we could ask the slave in 18th century America, listening to many a white southern preacher justify from the Bible how it's just fine that one human being of a different race, place, and face can be a slave to another human being, we might be glad that these things are put before us. And so while we're on that trail, let's get to the other trail. We can make the assumption very clearly that when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote it in a way that it would be read in the congregation. And so it's very, very safe to assume that Paul anticipated children would be in the assembly when the letters were read. So the context of the reading of the letter was not simply kind of a sanitized adult gathering. 
but it was actually a family gathering where all kinds of ages and stages of life were represented, right? That's what made Christianity so good. We learned that in, in Colossians 3. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, high street, low street. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free because Christ is all that matters. Christ is all that matters. And that's one of the dynamics of Christian living. No, no matter what, we can be together because of our union with Christ. And so... The children would, would be in that assembly. Incidentally, it's, it's always good to know that when we're learning from the Bible, no matter how bright we may be, every Christian needs the illumination of the Holy Spirit to come to a meaningful understanding. That's probably one of the reasons why Paul expected children to be in the assembly because he had the whole weight of this activity on God and His power and His glory and the Christian's union with Christ. But anyway... The children would be listening to the letter being read and they would learn how they, if, if they were a Christian, they were spot, spotless and, and, and without blemish and free from accusation because of the death of Christ. And they would learn that this is what God requires of my mother. That, that mom's response to dad is to model the church's response to Christ. And they would learn that this is what God requires of my dad. That dad's love for mom is to model Christ's life-altering, self-sacrificing love for the church. And they would learn that this is what God requires of them, the children, to be obedient to their dads and moms for this pleases the Lord. And they would learn that in the context of just like this, in public worship. Now, I think that this congregation does, does a better job than many. But we always have room for growth. So parents, listen carefully, please. We dare not send the message to our children by immediately parting ways with them as soon as we hit the doors of the church. And we do it in such a way that says, well, this bigger room, it really isn't for you. So that when we gather to pray and praise and listen to the instruction of the Bible, we could be indirectly saying, perhaps, well, this really isn't for you. This isn't really something you would enjoy or get into. Or this is something that probably not you wouldn't understand. Or... This is something that you can get later. And all of a sudden, our precious little 60-year-olds, our precious little 18-year-old adults, and despite all we say to them, despite all we say to them about the blessing and profit from the teaching of the Bible, the public worship of Jesus Christ with the people of God, we have allowed our children to slip through this time without, A, paying any good attention to what is taking place in the worship service, and, and without throwing themselves wholly into it, or B, we do not let them experience this benefit in any meaningful way at all so that we don't expect them to sit up and pay attention. We just expect them to kind of lay down and be quiet. Now, you'll, you'll notice that I've been very careful to not give any family, uh, personal family instruction on how we do what we do, and I've been meaningful in that because the friend's own home is filled with sinners saved by grace. But I'm going to give you just one thought here. One of the best benefits that Nicole and I ever kind of stumbled into in our approach to public worship with our kids is essentially this. We asked them to take notes of the sermon. And they started nine or ten years old. So their notes were pitiful in the beginning. But man, you, would, you should see them now. The, one of the byproducts, personally, is a great encouragement. I was like, I said that? Oh, really good. I said that? Oh, great. But I just kind of throw that out to you and let you do with that as you would. So, so maybe moms and dads wonder why the 20-something-year-old child from the Christian home, and they grow up and they have no genuine affection for the local church of Jesus Christ. 
the local church who Jesus Christ gave himself up for. And if we get it wrong as parents, if we got it wrong as parents, we can get it right as grandparents. So, so let's not try to be wiser than God here and kind of lower the bar of expectation that God has already set in place for our children. Let's believe God and live accordingly. Because frankly, why would you toss out a great number of Sundays where your children can learn in this context? Why would you throw that away so easily? Why? The Apostle Paul assumes the presence of God in public gathering for God's people in the reading of this letter. Just one quote from J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer says, American Christianity, 3,000 miles wide, half an inch deep. He quotes from Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Don't be the parent who says, we will not walk this way. One of the most heartbreaking occurrences of pastoral ministry is to see a mom and dad who followed their own ways, ignored the warnings, devalued God's instruction, devalued his assemblies, and treated these gatherings as something, well, we'll do if it fits in. If it fits in, then we'll do it. And thereby thinking that they knew everything would now do anything if their daughter, if their son, would be part of the family of God. Now, as we come to this verse, just a few points to work through. First point is pretty clear, the responsibility of the child to this command. Because it's there, Paul, God, is speaking to the child. So let's note, number one, it's clarity. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, it's very clear. It's so clear that even a child can understand this, right? Children, obey your mom and dad. Now, in these things, the Bible is always very, very clear. Proverbs 23, 22. Listen to your father who gave you life and do not despise your mother when she is old. Now, that's not very hard to understand. What is a child supposed to do? Listen to their dad. What is a child supposed to do? Don't despise your mother when she is old. Verse 24. The father of a righteous child has great joy. He who has a wise son delights in him. May your father and mother be glad. May she who gave you birth rejoice. So the Bible is very clear then. The child in obedience to their parents are to listen to their dad and not despise their mother as time sets in. So the Bible is clear on what it calls for. And the Bible also makes it clear that it's the foolish child, the foolish child who neglects their father's and mother's discipline. And again, the book of Proverbs helps us. It's got tons of warnings. It's the foolish child who neglects what the Bible says and kind of tanks on their responsibility. It's the foolish daughter who despises the instruction that comes to her from their dad and mom. Proverbs 20 and 11. Even a child is known by his actions, by whether his conduct is pure and right. That's a grace. That's a heads up from Solomon. Watch now. Watch now. Proverbs 19.13. A foolish child is a father's ruin. Now, you should know that the word that Paul uses here in verse 20 for child is a generic word for child. What does that mean? Well, it means that he's not referring specifically to age. He is referring to status. So there's a principle here. Children, listen to your Christian's mother and your Christian dad. And so as we grow older, as I grow older, 
The dynamic changes, we understand that. But it seems unwise to completely ignore this. And I'll tell you why. We have one wonderful example from Jesus Christ who is our example in everything. Jesus was at a wedding in Cana. His mother told him to do something. And the adult Jesus did exactly what his mother said. So the command is clear. The command is about correction, the discipline of correction. And this is the correction which brings the child into line of what the Bible teaches. This is, parents, we need to understand that the line that we want them to go down is the line that God has set himself. And it is our duty to see this to the end so that the child may enjoy the good things that comes with obedience and the child may be protected from the bad things that come out of their disobedience. And parents, this is the second reason why we correct our children, right? First, God in his glory. However, we do not correct our children simply to get our own way, making things work better for us parents, make things better, fitting better for us parents. Because, frankly, that's not a family. That sounds more like slavery. So we don't correct them to simply get our way. We, we don't correct them so we won't be embarrassed. We give ourselves to our children's correction because, first, We love and revere God. And second, we love and cherish and value our children. Okay? Love and fear God first. That's why we correct. And love and cherish and value our children. And, because I suspect this is the one that we always miss, and we correct our children because we ought to love and cherish and value the society in which we will send our children into. Right? I mean, you rarely hear that this day. Everything's so focused on the family. Only the family, you know, this, get this right and everything will be wonderful. Well, I hope it will be wonderful. But there's also a society that we have to think about. So that we're not sending into society bad, lazy, disrespectful, sloppy, unsocial, uncivil adults. Please, God, may we get these things right. And a parent, a sensible parent, who is loving and committed in these things is absolutely vital to the well-being of the children. Parents, sensible, loving commitment in these things is absolutely vital to the well-being of the child because many a son and many a daughter will be saved simply, will be saved from heartaches and pain simply by obeying Colossians 3.20, whether they feel like it or whether they don't feel like it. And when a child resents and rejects parental discipline, when a child is not trained by this discipline, the Bible explains this within the framework of a hard heart. It's the hardening of the heart. So when a child's heart is hard, or adult for that matter, when a, when a child's heart is hard and indifferent and cold and callous, we can be absolutely sure that this does not happen in just a moment of time, but it happens over a period of time. It's the same way when someone hears the gospel being proclaimed over and over again. It's either softening their heart or it's hardening their heart. That's why to be a part of a congregation where the Bible is preached regularly is a wonderful and terrible privilege. Because something's going to happen when that person is listening week after week after week. Either the heart will be softened or the heart will be hardened. And if the heart is hardened, it's going to be harder to listen to. It's going to be harder to obey. In fact, it's going to get to the point where it might seem impossible to obey what Jesus says. So people become cynical, dismissive, disinterested, and if you would, sleepy to God's truth. 
But a child, a child that has his heart, will increasingly dislike and distrust and be hostile towards all forms of authority. Mind that, parents. All forms of authority. So not just parental. And school, clubs, sports, with other adults. Always trouble. Always trouble. And parents, when we see this, don't ignore this. Do not blame others. Rather, deal with it quickly. This is a grace the Christian parent has. Deal with it before the phone call comes, the grades come, the life is messed up, and that becomes this kind of hard-heartedness becomes the very fabric of their life. 1 Samuel 2.12 Eli's sons were wicked men. Why? Because their dad never did the right thing at the right time confronting his son's wickedness for the glory of God and for the good of the community. And God said through the prophet, you are honoring them more than me, and, and you despise me. And in time, the punishment, God removes the family from their privileged duty. So in that case, like father, like son, a failure to do what is right, when it's right, and to keep at it, to keep at it, keep at it because the clock is ticking. Little, little drops of water, little grains of sand make the mighty oceans and the distant lands, thus those little moments, humble though they be, make the mighty ages of eternity. So as you think about this, even a child's reluctance in their response to their parents' correction and instruction has to be dealt with. And children who are listening, take note of this. Because our reluctance, our foot dragging, your lack of enthusiasm to the authority of your parents is equally a sign of a hard heart. Now parents, listen carefully. This is not the same as a child having to give instantaneous, robotic, immediate obedience to our response. This is not snap to it. These are our sons and daughters. These are not our enemies and not our slaves. The child needs time to think through to reason, to come to a conclusion, a sensible conclusion themselves. And patience and long-suffering is called for on the part of the parents. Because we know this. We know the plain difference between an obedience that is heartfelt, God-honoring and sincere, and obedience which is not. In other words, an external yes, but an internal no. Because an internal no, even with an external yes, is still a no. It's a disguise. It's a rouge of the increasingly stubborn and rebellious heart. So if I had to bring this down to one word, I think the word that I would choose is respect. And no, I'm not going to sing the song. Respect. And for a child to respect their parents means at least this, that they will speak respectively, respectively and kindly to them, and they will speak respectively and kindly about them, even behind the parents' back. And that's true of all forms of respect, by the way, but for the child, the test is then their little eyes, right? The, the child's eyes will tell everything. I don't know if you do this. I'm sorry that I do do this, but in public places, I like to listen to watch people, and I'm always amazed at the, at the young child or the teenager on the cell phone, and I want to listen to what they're saying, especially if they're talking to their mother and dad, and you hear the, yes, mom, yes, dad, okay. What are they doing? 
Or they're responding in a way that the parents want to hear, but they're not responding in the way that God would have them. No respect. All the seeds of disrespect are built into that conversation. The words are right, the eyes are wrong, and the eyes are the windows of the soul. And genuine respect for a person, when you speak to them, demands that you look at them. So this is not a social issue, but an emotional, a psychological, and civil issue. This is, this is civility 101. Look at the person when you talk to them. That's civility. That's how, that's how cultures, in one sense, survive. Because how many times have we had to tell our little children, look at me when I'm talking to you? Why do we say that? Because we want to see their eyes. The eyes are the windows of the soul. The eyes tell on the heart. So we have to say to our children, look at me, because when I look at you, I see into you. When I see your eyes, I see most everything. And children know this. Because why do they, not, why do they look away? Right? They look away. Listen to your Bibles, Proverbs 30, 17. The eye that mocks a father, that scorns an aged mother, will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley will be eaten by the vultures. It's a very, very graphic image showing the dead-end road of a child's inward disobedience as revealed to the parents through the eyes. So the life is altered because the eyes tell the heart and the heart is hard. And Solomon describes essentially a useless life, a dead life. Responsibility to child to the command. And secondly, the question that some might ask because of this command, Right? Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. It's written in the imperative. It's a command. And so people say, well, surely there must be some exceptions. And of course there is, just like with husbands and just like with wives. But when it comes to exceptions, aren't you kind of a little suspicious of yourself if you're always immediately looking for the exception in things? You know, always kind of looking for the way out of things. Well, it's the very least I have to do to be okay here. You know, just tell me what's on the test. Think with me for a moment. Would you really want that person tying knots on, let's say, your mountain climbing team? Do do you really want that person in charge of security? What's the very least I can do? Verse 20 is a comprehensive statement. It's a general principle. Children, when it comes to bedtime, education, hygiene, friendship, diet, dating, purchases, finance, the next steps in your life, and on and on. Children, let your instincts be, I'm going to obey my mom and dad across the board and everything. I'm going to listen to them. This is your default. This is your screensaver. This is your wallpaper. Set it to Colossians 3.20. Obey dad and mom and everything for this pleases the Lord. Obey them. Unless, unless what your parents are calling for you to do is something that breaks God's law and breaks man's law, not in conflict with God's law. And at that point, children, we must obey God and not our parents. Let me give you one example. Let's say there's a child, 12, 13, 14 years old. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. Bits and pieces of their life are changing, and the time comes for them to be baptized. So the child goes home to an unbelieving parent and says to them, I'm going to be baptized in three weeks. And the parents immediately immediately respond, we forbid this. Okay, this is our context now, our culture. What is the child to do? Well, I, John Stott, J.I. Packer, Alex Rebeg, Rico Tice, John MacArthur, this is their advice. Obey your parents and wait to be baptized. And here's why. Number one, the Bible is clear on instruction for the child to obey their parents. 
2, the Bible is clear on instruction concerning the very nature of baptism, what it is and what it is not. But the Bible gives no exact instruction in terms of the timing of baptism, particularly as it relates, relates to the child. So there's going to come a day when the child will grow up out of the home. They will no longer obey in that way this denial of baptism. But until that day, in that context, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called what? They shall be called the children of God. Now, it would be right to talk for a moment about stepdad and stepmom. It would also be right for a moment to speak of the Old Testament punishment for disobedient children, which is death. We are going to do that. We're just not going to do it today. We're going to wait till next time. Number three, the character of God in this command. So there's a responsibility to the child. There's questions that might come. The character of God in this command. Because in everything from the Bible, the character and, and therefore the very nature of God is being revealed in this command. Now we've already said in the case of wives and husbands, for a wife or a husband to obey these commands is for a wife then to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and for a husband to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's same for the child. For a child to obey these commands, the child is saying Jesus Christ is Lord. So Paul is speaking within a framework, a Christian home. And he tells these children, obey your parents, not only because they are your parents, but obey them because, because this pleases the Lord. Now I want you to see that's the motivation of the text. What is the motivation for the child being obedient to the parents? The pleasure of Christ. Children, do you want to please Christ? Then listen to your dad and mom. Children, is Jesus Christ Lord of all? Then listen to your dad and mom. Learn to obey your unseen heavenly father by obeying your seen mother and father on earth. Now, if you think through that, that makes, to me, that makes Christianity wonderful, relevant, and powerful, right? Wonderful because it's true. We were made for God's pleasure, so we won't fall foul of putting us and everything first. It's relevant because this goes beyond the niceties. Children, if you listen to your mom and listen to your dad, the potential for you to get a nice home, a nice car, a nice family, a nice job, a nice life, if you obey, is massive here. Okay, we get that. Those things are good. We may want them for our children, but they are not the highest good. The highest good is the pleasure of Christ. And it's powerful because it demands an answer to the question. Okay, Jesus, this pleases you? Are, are you worth pleasing? Are you worth pleasing? What's the Bible answer? What's the logical answer? What's the gospel answer? Absolutely. Now, loved ones, that is a transformed child who understands that. Because if obedience is to be worked out, it has to be worked out in the home. The church may be able to complement what takes place in the home, but the church can never supplement what should be taking place in the home. So for better or worse, it's the home. It's the home. And we have a public posture. We understand that. We know what we want people to think of us. We know how to conduct ourselves in the business day and whatever the ins and outs of our days. We know what that civility calls for. But those who know us at home, they really know us. They know us at levels that no one can, can know. And so because of this, what Chuck Swindoll said a long time ago is absolutely tr true. If our Christianity 
doesn't work at home, our Christianity probably isn't working. Probably isn't working. If our profession to the obedience of the Scriptures doesn't find itself working out itself in the common everyday life of home, then we're in trouble. And time will bear that out. John Stott, home and not the church is a place where this lesson is to be learned. A lesson in which lie nearly all the possibilities in any life of Christian service for future usefulness and honor. Because the heart of the matter, and with this I close, the heart of the matter is essentially this. The parents are the earthly representatives of God's authority over the child. So that then, first century, now, 21st century, when a child disobeys their Christian parents' proper authority, the child is disobeying the very authority of God. And parents, that is what is at stake. When a child disobeys their Christian parents' proper authority, then they are disobeying the very authority of God. Dis- disobey them, mom and dad, you are disobeying him, the Lord Jesus Christ. More to cover. All spirit and Lord willing, we'll, we'll try to do that next Sunday. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together. Now I'm going to pray a prayer from an old prayer book. The title of the prayer is Pray with Parents Whose Children Are a Great Concern to Them or Have Become a Grief to Them. So let's bow and pray. Gracious God, we pray that you would give parents the desires of their heart concerning their children, which is to see them walking in your truth. Form Christ in them at a very early age. Let their children know and love the God of their parents. Inspire them to serve you with their whole heart and with a willing mind. Let children be pointed in the right direction as arrows in the hands of their parents that the parents may count themselves happy to have these children you have given to them. Let foolish children that are a constant grief to their parents and a heavy burden to them be brought to repentance. Turn from their folly and may they no longer scorn obedience to their mother, obedience to their father, and obedience to their God. Let the reckless, lawless, restless daughter or son who has been so unprofitable now be beneficial to everyone they happen to meet. Turn the hearts of these children so that they love and respect their mother and their father. Let the disobedience come, disobedient come to respect the wisdom of their parents so that they would be a person, a people ready and prepared for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make those who have presumed to make themselves great clearly understand the evil of their deeds and their sins. Open their ears so they can hear correction and turn away from their iniquity. Father, please, for Jesus' sake, we would ask that you answer this prayer. Amen.